Hey listeners, it's Andy, and I'm here to see if you've tried Audible yet. With an incredible selection of audiobooks, it is the perfect way to dive deeper into the stories upon which some of your favorite films are based. Audible members get a credit every month to redeem on any audiobook they like, plus access to a huge plus catalog of podcasts, originals, and more. Just imagine listening to the books that inspired movies like The Bourne Identity, Moneyball, or sci-fi classics like Dune. The best part? You can try Audible free for 30 days and get your first audiobook on them. It's a great way to experience storytelling while supporting this podcast. To get started, go to thenextreel.com slash audible or text thenextreel to 500-500. Listen to incredible audiobooks and support the show today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. I was born to lick your face. <laughs> How about a dip in the pool? <laughs> hey, uh, so I don't really, I don't really have any good stories this week. I do have uh, my my son has taken on these sort of Zen cones. I was reading a reading Zen. A yeah, cones. It's just I was reading reading a story. Uh huh. And right in the middle, like I'm in the middle of a paragraph. I, I don't even remember what it was about. And he stops. He puts his hand very gently on my arm. He said, Dad, Dad. I said, what is it, bud? You, what do you need? He says, a closed mouth gathers no feet. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> what, what exactly are you saying? I think we need to work on your subtlety or subtext or whatever. <laughs> I feel like you just told me to shut up in like the most elegant way I've ever heard. <laughs> uh, I love oh, it. I man. love that bit. I that is that funny. Bit. Yeah. How you That's doing? Funny. I'm good. I've been busy. Yeah, you've had lots of you've been you've been like full on producer man. Yeah, it's producing been producing uh, and budgeting and scheduling. It's been a hefty, hefty week right now. Uh, are you, are last, you pitching? Last few are you guys weeks. pitching anything awesome right now? Or are you just like wrapping stuff up and distributing? Uh, we're not pitching anything right now. We're we're gearing up to pitch, but right now we're just in, in the middle of production on on many projects, and so it's yeah. just it's been uh, a little exhausting juggling all of them. Is but it, you know, I mean, is it part of the fun? It for you guys is pretty cyclical. Like, is this a time of year that's pretty busy for you, or is it just uh, typically like, completely random? Typically, summer um, well, summer used to be one of the slowest times because nobody wanted to work in the heat. But the last couple of years, it's actually been very busy for us. So, mm. um, so hey, we'll take that. Yeah, take it. Yeah. Take it and run, sunshine. Yes, indeedy. Uh, Just like Forrest. 
Run, Andy, run. <laughs> um, well, hey, what? Did you see that article in Variety about the trailers? Because of they wrote that because of of the rant. The, yes. What do you, what did you think about that? Should we do you want to talk about it? Yeah, I think we should. We should do that. What do you think about that? So what was that what was it about? Uh, just the idea that you know trailers are these huge promotion things and 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 there is this huge uh contingency of people out there who are watching trailers like crazy on the internet and sites like Fandango um just are it's it's almost an event. I mean, I don't know if you saw them, but I saw the the trailers promoting the new trailer for Galaxy Quest that came out. I think the tr the trailer promoting the trailer came out maybe two weeks ago, and then the new trailer I think came out last week. Right, right. It's just like wow, it it, it is really this event that. Well, and now they have these special trailers that are promoting not just the trailer trailer or the new release of the trailer, but now different formats of the trailer. You see, you know you want to see the 4K trailer. We got right. that too. Ultra HD trailer. It's uh, and, and here's the special thing. Uh, so yeah, and it, we've we've ranted before, and and this is a little bit uh, hypocritical, right? Because you know we we definitely promote our share of trailers every week. Yeah, we and usually trailers. watched digitally. <laughs> watched digitally. We love the trailers, and uh, and and I do love the trailers. I I am becoming increasingly sensitive to uh you know bad or spoilerific trailers i think yeah. they, they kind of give up the art of the trailer and um i i'm finding i really appreciate trailers when they find a way to tell the get me excited about the story without giving the entire film away that was i think one of my biggest disappointments i had a lot of disappointments about spider-man 2 as we talked about but one of my biggest ones as i mentioned was the fact that um one of the key characters was established very firmly in the trailer and the way that they were positioned in the film ended up being um the, the really the spoiler uh, the the trailer really spoiled that whole yeah thing. super disappointing when the same thing for uh we haven't talked about it yet but you i know are about to totally buzzkill uh days of future past um and it was the same thing like the trailer ends up giving away kind of what ends up being sort of a weird moment but it gives away some big major set pieces in a way that um you know in reading this article in variety and and i i think the title you know tra trailers have become as big as the films they promote um i i think it really gets to it that they're they're giving away i think intentionally more in the trailer because the trailer has become such an event in itself and i, I you know it's it's no longer a teaser as it once was you know the teaser now teases the trailer that is coming which and the trailer has become a mini feature of the feature mm -hmm. the thing that um is frustrating is that it's there's no way for them to really release uh, to do a test and release a trailer to see, uh, like like a trailer that's not giving any spoilers away uh, to an audience and see how the film does, and then release another version of the trailer uh, that has all those spoilers in it, and then see how the film does. There's no way for them to gauge that. So you know, in a in a very big sense, they're just kind of flying blind, 
And they think that by putting all that extra stuff in the trailer, it's actually helping the film sell. But I'll tell you, if they didn't show some of those things in the X-Men trailer, the people still would have come to see it. <laughs> yes. You know, they that's still the would have come to see it. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I think they gave up a lot. And the same thing with with uh, Guardians of the Galaxy uh, and Godzilla. And, you know, because it used to be, I mean, remember the days when there was a trailer? Mm-hmm. And I just mean like a trailer. There was a trailer for a film, and it was a little work of art that teased the movie and gave you a sense of what you were going to see, but there was just one. And now that we've moved into trailers as a, a part of a campaign, we see you know trailer number one, trailer number two, trailer number three, character trailers. We have, uh, and now we have, um, you know, here are clips trailers. Um, you know, you go into the iTunes uh, trailer app uh, on, uh, and you get all of the trailers in a row, and sometimes you have 10 or 12 different pre-release features uh, that come out of a out of one of these giant films and as you say people would see the film anyway yeah uh most of the films of these big and the, the films that probably would need the 10 or 12 trailers don't have the budget to to um to create them right um so it, it's a we're it's a very frustrating sort of a, a place to be there for these elaborate event trailers you know dawn of the planet of the apes is is there maleficent is there uh transformers age of extinction oh my goodness yeah. Are we in the middle of it? We keep getting more and more of the movie in it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and of course, I mean, we're going to see it anyway. But, you know, like you say, wh- how do we test uh, to see how these movies would do? Is there a direct impact on these movies, particularly the event films, uh, if they were to actually not um, have that level of uh, trailer spoilerage? Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to say. And maybe it's because the culture is so oversaturated right now that okay, the Transformers trailer was cool when it first came out, but by the time that you know we're a week out and the movie is about to come out, is there still audience interest, or has everybody moved on to all the new exciting trailers and everybody's kind of forgotten Transformers, and that's why they feel, oh, we better put a new trailer out you know, uh, four weeks before the movie and then two weeks before the movie. Like, I, What is their mindset to planning this uh, marketing strategy well i wonder and i think you look at at warner brothers um it, you know maybe this is a sign that they are that they are open to testing if not willing to test uh that interstellar premiered its big trailer in theaters only um you know that that ends up being uh you know a, a nod to christopher nolan um you know who has other issues <laughs> He's got plenty of issues with with going old school. Yeah, I yeah, I, you know, but uh, but at the same time, at least it's a sign. And I, you know, I don't think it's necessarily fair, as you say. People are going to see Interstellar anyway. I think. Right. Um, so. Well, yeah, and I, I you know, hope, well, I hope because it's it's original property. It's not based on a comic book character. You know, we'll see. You know, after a, a, what kind of pull he really has. But the question with that is. Did it matter that it premiered in theaters, right? Or are people watching the trailer online anyway? Right. I mean, I don't know if if you know where it premieres is really going to matter. I mean, yeah, sure, true. it's always better to see it in the theater, but it's, uh, it's so much easier to just catch these on your computer when you get a moment. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Uh, so the article will uh, put the article in the. Um, in the show notes, you can check it out. It's uh, you know it's an interesting little piece. It gives you something to think about. Yeah. All right. Um, hey, you know we should probably tell the people where we're from. Where are we from? 
Hey, everybody, it's the next reel. Uh, I'm Pete Wright, that there's Andy Nelson. Hey! And we spoil movies. Once again, we are thrilled that you have put your movie spoilerage in our gentle hands. Uh, you can find out more about the show at thenextreel.com. You can read the blog stylings of the once and future king, Steve Sarmento. You can catch up with us on all our favorite social platforms, Twitter, uh, Google+, uh, Facebook, uh, join the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. And if you're not playing, you really need to play over on Instagram. The Pony Prize. Outsmarted. Steven Smart versus the people. Guess the movie challenge. That's How did right. we do this week? He did. It was a pretty good week. He he went uh, a, a good number of images. It was uh, Hitchcock's Torn Curtain from 1966. And it's interesting. It's one of those movies that has a certain look to it. And I believe there was some, I can't remember who, but somebody had a guess of, uh, of a different Hitchcock film. And it was just interesting that from the look of the images, they were able to kind of pull Hitchcock out of thin air and kind of come up with something, even though they were wrong. But uh, Joe <laughs> Miha ended up, ended up getting it correct, I think, using a little uh, a Google uh, search, uh, he acknowledged. But hey, you know, if you gotta, uh, if you gotta dig into some research a little bit to track it down, you know, we're not gonna hold it against you. So, congratulations to Jomiha and uh, great job this week, Stephen. <laughs> That's awesome. It's who cheats faster. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Yes, congratulations, uh, congratulations, Jomiha. <laughs> Omaha, hi. That's pretty good, right? That was that was stellar. That was <laughs> it was I not quite interstellar. No, not quite interstellar. Not quite. <laughs> uh, do, do you know the reference at all? It's from a TV show. I don't know the reference. Nothing. I wonder if anybody does. From a TV show, <laughs> current se- or the most recent season of one of the most wrong and yet funniest TV shows on the air. Oh, uh, it's a cable show. Oh, okay. I was going to say something, but it's not. It's good. It's good fun. Good fun. All right. Enough about that. Hey, let's talk trailers. We are talking trailers. You know, I realize yes, usually we do a little trailer review before we uh, talk about the actual trailers, and we didn't do that tonight. And here we are recording, and I don't know if you've seen my trailer. I've seen it. You have? Yes, I was uh, I was very uh, much in the uh, preparation mode this uh, this evening. And oh, I, I'm so I, glad. I know. I checked Evernote and everything, and I, I got your little trailer link, and I watched it, and I said, sweet. Oh, yay. Well, That's then let's right. go me first, then. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I am doing the fantastic-looking, uh, at least, uh, Snowpiercer. Uh, so you know about this Snowpiercer. You know, this is a film that I've heard about, and it's it's one of those films that popped up on, on some people's favorite films of 2013 list because yeah. it was released last year, but it still hasn't made its way here. It was. It was it's uh, written and directed by uh, Bong Joon-ho, Korean director, and uh, I, you know, I haven't seen all of his films, but I did, I... I... <laughs> I think we may have even talked about this on the show at one point, early, early, when I first saw The Host. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you seen that? 
I have seen that. You have seen that. That that became one of my uh, quickly became one of my favorite uh, guilty pleasure monster movies. Uh, <laughs> I had a, a deliriously good time watching that film, uh, and so I, I I ended up watching Mother in two thousand nine, which was uh, I, I think uh, transcendent. I mean, it was it, it was really an, a, a super interesting uh, way to uh, or uh, kind of a vector on this. Um, procedural um you know crime right uh, drama it was wonderful and, and so i'm very excited to see I, I you know i saw the trailer and i, I wasn't able to connect that it was a uh, bong Juno, but uh because it was you know it's done 80 percent of it is in uh, is in english and so this is his english language debut uh stars chris evans jamie bell tilda swinton and a lot of other awesome people ed harris uh john hurt octavia spencer Allison Pill. Uh, it's it, it's a fantastic cast. Uh, the film it, it's about. To, so here we go. Um, ripped from the headlines, uh, a, a 2014 experiment to counteract global warming causes the ice age that kills nearly all life on Earth, and the only inhabitants that are left uh, happen to be living on the Snowpiercer. A, a massive train powered by a um, like an infinity uh, engine, a perpetual motion engine that keeps the train. And so, uh, this train, which is on this global track, just spinning around the world forever, um, is uh, it, it a class system develops and it becomes kind of the, a cross between the Hunger Games and and um, uh, other movies that take place in cold places. <laughs> <laughs> I just had a little aneurysm just then. Uh, anyway, so it's uh, it uh, you know, Chris um, uh, Chris Evans and team are taking over Tilda Swinton and her overbite, uh, and uh, it looks fantastic. I think it's going to be a great and really a vibrantly beautiful um, film. I'm very excited about it. Yeah, it looks visually pretty interesting considering they're on a train the whole time. It actually yeah. looks really yeah, really cool and the class system and the military and everything looks cool. And uh Ewan Bremner's in it and it's always fun to see him pop up in uh in movies, even in bit parts. He's he's the uh the the guy who has the big poo in train spotting. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. I totally missed that. I'm, uh, it's I'm just... sad to say that's how I will always remember him. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I this uh, film it, it opened last year in South Korea and it's making its way toward us. It will hit us the end of June. Opens June twenty seventh, U.S. Yeah, it looks really fun. I can't wait to see that one. Yeah, very exciting. interesting. Very interesting film. What do you awesome. get? What do you got? What do you bring? To the I table am here? bringing a a really quirky film that just looks like something I will fall in love with. I hope it's something I will fall in love with. Uh, it's a it's a comedy drama fantasy directed by Michelle Gondry, uh, who did one of my faves, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, um, and uh, it stars Audrey Tatu and uh, Romain Dury, who is uh, they were in a couple of films together, like La Berge Espagnole and uh, Russian Dolls, and films that uh, I can't remember that director's name right now, but uh, he's directed them in a couple. Uh, Cedric Klapish has directed them in a, a few films. Well, now Michelle Gondry has got the two of them together in this really interesting-looking film uh, that looks as fantastical as uh, just as as you can get. It's just this beautiful painted-looking uh, story that has uh, like stop-motion mechanical things and just you know them flying around in little 
spaceships and stuff. And uh, there's something about the whole look of it that just makes me fall in love with it. It's just it's very fantastical in a way that is uh, is beautiful, and it it does bring this kind of sense of passion to the film. Uh, it's based on a novel um, that by Boris Vian. I never, I don't think I've read or heard of any of his books. Um, well, I guess he did write the I Spit on Your Grave novel. Uh, so I have heard of that one. So there's that. <laughs> so there's that one. But the rest of them are all in foreign language. Um, but, and then uh, Audrey Tattoo, uh, I guess she gets a disease where she actually starts growing a flower in her lungs. And so he has to perpetually surround her by flowers in order to keep her alive or something. And I don't know if I fully understand the story or the whole concept of it, but just the idea of it um, just looks beautiful. I mean, just the, the, you know, when the little clock on the wall sprouts legs and climbs around and when they're flying their little ship and just kind of the, the quirkiness and the awkwardness of these two characters as they're falling in love and living life together. This is a film that, uh, you know, it just looks like one of those beautiful films that uh, is going to tell a, a really touching story. And I, I fell in love watching the trailer. I totally agree with you. It was, it, it's delightful. And, uh, you know, I, it's one of those films where I, I'm pretty much any Audrey Tattoo film is, I get this feeling like I'm watching it and I think, oh my goodness, I, I had no idea that they were, they had brought, uh, you know, Audrey Hepburn back. <laughs> CGI. I mean, she's just, just really captures that uh, wide-eyed innocence of, yeah. of uh, these classic Hepburn films. So I, I think it looks uh, lovely and clever. And um, what was that TV show? You remember that TV show? It was on it was like one or two seasons about the guy who, um, um, oh, it was like this wonderful like fantasy story. Uh, and she, he like made cakes out of dead people. <laughs> oh that one boy I... oh come on and there was that the the woman was in it and they had to go like solve crimes oh no it was a thing where he could like bring people back from the dead but only for 30 seconds that was he, he had this special power and he could bring people back from the dead but only for 30 seconds and then they would die again so if they were trying to solve a crime he would only have 30 seconds to ask the victim what was going on i think it was uh pushing daisies pushing daisies okay so that's what i (laughs) that's what i thought (laughs) of when i saw this trailer because it has that kind of fantastical vibrance to it and a lot of flowers and her right and it it has that michelle and that michelle gondry yes quirkiness like the science of sleep has that same sort of feel, almost kind of like the, they're living in this little stop motion world. Totally. Some totally, of Wes totally. Anderson, Wes Anderson's recent films have had a little bit of that. Yep. Yeah, there's something going on with that, but uh, Michelle Gondry seems to have really tapped into it uh, in the right way in this. Absolutely agree. Yeah. All right. So that's my trailer, and it opens. Uh, that's another one that's been kind of making its slow journey around the world. It opened last spring. Uh, in Europe, and it's just been kind of trucking ever so slowly, ever so slowly. It's going to open in the U.S. in uh, July 18th, it looks like. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Let's go rob a bank. Are you clear? You've been putting down two, three scores a month. You want to put down contract scores all over the country, working directly for me? I am self-employed. Geisty Lice. 
just diamonds of cash. Fine. I'll make you a millionaire in four months. I wear $150 slacks. I wear silk shirts. I wear $800 suits. I wear a gold watch. I wear a perfect, deep, flawless, three-carat ring. I'm a thief. Do you think that I have been waiting for you to come along? You gonna marry her and have some kids? Yes. I'm just, I'm just asking you to be with me. Go. I got a problem. I want my money. We are new partners. We in for ten points. I am the last guy you want to mess with. You get paid what I say. You do what I say. You don't know from one day to the next whether you're going to be killed, go home, or get busted. James Caan. Thief. Thief. Andy. Thief. 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 Yes. 1981 uh, neo-noir film written directed by Michael Mann. His, his first theatrical film. It is. First for a lot of people in it, too. Yes, yes. Um, we're still in our 1981 vibe, although this one, maybe more than any other one that we've talked about so far, really feels like a 70s film. I think this and Blowout both yeah, really yeah. feel like they are of the same ilk. Yeah. You know, they both feel like... You haven't been able to shake off the, uh, shake off the, the, uh, the vibe. Right, right. But it's good. I I like the vibe in this one. Do you? This so this one this one stuck out. So first of all, t- what what's what's it about? What is That's, thief about? Let's talk about that. It's the it's the typical story of you know a thief who goes back for one last job and and uh, doesn't go so well. <laughs> yeah. I guess you could say. Uh, you know it. it I, it's a great example of just Michael Mann and his kind of fascination with the world of crime. I mean, uh, it's it is a thief, a, a, a jewel thief, a diamond. He only steals diamonds or cash, and just kind of living his life and doing his thing. And he gets mixed up with the wrong guy uh, who sets him on a, a big score. And of course, um, the thief makes out with all the all the loot, but then this guy isn't going to let him go, and. Uh, yeah, that's that's the way these stories tend to go. <laughs> it certainly is. Uh, it ends up doing a um, doing a gig for the mob, mm-hmm. and uh, you don't you just generally want to try and stay away from organized crime. I think yeah, that's the rule a good of idea. That's that's the lesson of the, of the Michael Mann movies. I think organized is the operative term. Crime, lots of crime. Organized that's crime, right. stay away from. Stars James Caan. Uh, Tuesday Weld, Robert Prosky, and Willie Nelson. Good old Willie. Along with a, a uh, dashingly charming James Belushi. He's, yeah, and yeah, it's great. That's Dennis what I, Farina. it's, it's sort of hard to, uh, you know, I was thinking of alternate titles to Thief. Uh, one of them is the, the death of the great James Belushi. Because <laughs> man, does he take a shot. He sure does. Oh, he sure does. Uh, or uh, the other title, this is actually the, I, I think this was the um, the uh, working title, was, Oh My God, We Forgot to White Balance This Movie. <laughs> that was another working title I had in mind for this. Interesting. 
<laughs> but then they realized, oh my God, we never white balance Michael Mann movies. <laughs> so that's it just became a thing. Somebody oh. screwed up on this one and now it's a thing. And now it's a thing. <laughs> it's the first thing know. he says to this to to you know, looking at Donald Thorne, cinematographer of this one, he says, Hey, you make sure you screw up that white balance before you press <laughs> press the red <laughs> button. <laughs> you just make it I just want to go cold. I want it to be cold. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Uh, okay, so that's what the that's what the story is. This film, um, uh, produced by uh, the uh, young and rugged Jerry Bruckheimer uh, and uh, Ronnie Kahn. Yeah, this is before Jerry got uh, hooked up with Don Sim- Simpson and started yeah. doing their their crazy big budget over the top stuff. Right, right. Uh, and uh, this one, it's it is. Um, it's subdued. One of the things I, you know, I think we, one of the reasons I think it really captures that 70s vibe is it's actually based on uh, the, ni- er, the 1975 novel, The Home Invaders, which is based on a, a true story by um, uh, John Siebold, writing under the pen name Frank Hoheimer. Uh, and uh, so it is, it is his story. And I think that's one of the, the, the things that Michael Mann, I, I think, does well, generally in his films, is... Uh, doing his best to capture the realism. Whether you think about it while you're watching the film or not, he puts an awful lot of research into these crime films. You can tell he's he is a, a an aficionado uh, of crime and not just, hey, I love crime, but I want to know how it's done every step of the way to the point where uh, many of the tools that are used to actually pull off these safe-cracking heists he borrowed from uh, John Siebold for the film. So it is, uh, I, you know, I think he would say it's about as legitimate as you can, uh, as you can come up with, you know, and uh, his, his, um, you know, he's on the record as saying, look, I, I could make up this stuff all day long, uh, but really there's nothing more exciting or interesting than seeing how it is really done. Yeah. Uh, and to the point where, I mean, he actually had uh, real thieves as the uh, as the technical advisors on the right. set, and they would teach James Conn how to how to actually break into these safes. And um, I believe, according to uh, something I read, um, some of these thieves uh, were still on the FBI's most wanted list, uh, at least as of 2011, when I, when that was said. So right. it's like they're serious people. These these uh, technical advisors that they were using on this film, right? And and uh, I I believe. I you know I maybe I'm I, I believe I read that uh, uh, Ruzzi, uh yeah in, in John Santucci the actor John Santucci right. is was actually uh, a thief was this right. thief so a lot of the story was was uh, based on what he did and he actually played uh, the um, corrupt uh, lieutenant in right. thief uh, so you know some of these guys had had bigger roles I mean Michael Mann spent at least three years wandering the streets of Chicago with with these guys uh, kind of learning the trade, learning how to portray the trade. And I, I, you know, I think that comes through in the film. Uh, Oh yeah, I I think so. And before this, he had done that, uh, that TV movie um, uh, in, I think he filmed it in uh, Folsom prison, Jericho mile. Right. um, With like real inmates and everything. And so he very much was in a place where he had tapped into that that crime world and everything. And I, I think he, uh, I mean, he's a guy who grew up in Chicago um, in a time where Chicago had a lot of crime. 
uh, and is something that he was always fascinated with, and and it just uh, infused kind of his the career path he took with um, just a lot of the uh, projects that he's made. Clearly, because I mean, if you look at the list of Michael Mann films, it is uh, it is crime, 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 crime. I mean, I don't know. You know, he started with Thief, which is definitely crime. The mm-hmm. Keep. I haven't seen The Keep, but I don't think it's crime. Um, Manhunter definitely is a crime story. Last of the Mohicans is not. Heat is. The Insider is a corporate crime. Right. Ali is not, really. Um, oh, it was, it was a crime. <laughs> it was a crime. It was a, <laughs> it was a crime. Collateral, uh, I don't... Uh, there's definitely a crime element. There's that kind of oh, uh, yeah. hitman crime side to right. it. And then Miami Vice and, and then Public Enemies. So very much. And not to mention all the TV projects that he's worked on. Right. Miami Vice and uh, uh, Crime Story. And um, so it's definitely something that has infused his sensibilities in uh, his entire uh, filmmaking career. And looking at even something like heat um he is very much about the details of accuracy and getting these people doing stuff and acting as these as the real people would right well and even his uh, you know we didn't mention his upcoming film 2015 uh cyber with chris hemsworth is again a heist thriller uh but this time uh in the area of high level computer hacking yeah. the american and chinese military um, so again, he's uh, he's he's sticking with it. Yeah, it's uh, that's his his thing. Uh, so okay, how did it hold up? I think you and I had had not seen this film in a while, right? I mean, yeah. you you had been a longer time for you, I think. I hadn't seen it in quite a while, and I really didn't remember much about it other than James Conn was a thief. <laughs> so, yeah. Like I just remembered nothing. So it was really like going into it fresh, and I really liked most of it. <laughs> I feel I like actually, I could cut that out. Like I really liked right. it. Uh, what? Uh, okay. So first of all, I, what did you like about it? I I mean, I just like the story. I like uh, the I like James Con. I think he's solid. I like <laughs> his relationship with um, uh, with Tuesday Weld's character. Um, I think um, there's something really interesting about their relationship. Um, between Frank and Jesse, their two characters, uh, that I really like. I, I like Willie Nelson in the film. It's a, it's a little weird. There's something about the way he's looking at him that it feels like he's in love with him, and I wasn't quite sure if that's what they are going for or not, but it felt a little uh, homoerotic, <laughs> homoerotic in that scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, James Belushi was great. I mean, I, I really liked the cast of characters. I loved Robert Prosky in this. I thought he was just fantastic as Leo. Um, I love the crimes. I love the story. I think I think I really liked Frank's journey over the course of the film. Um, I Tangerine Dream's music didn't bother me as much this time, but there's something about the electronic music of the '80s that uh, can be trying, and I I think it works most of the time. But there are times where it just really is. I find it very jarring. And it kind of takes me out of the film. And it's actually funny because even now, Michael Mann says he's not, he still is battling with himself if using Tangerine Dream was the right decision for the film, which I found funny because I, there are times where I don't think it's right at all. Um, he said that he, you know, he grew up in that Chicago kind of the blues music scene and he really kind of wanted to put that in here. And I, I kind of almost feel like that might have worked better. But I do like something about the synthetic music with the, 
with the, uh, you know, just the nature of the crimes that they're doing with these big drills and kind of the mechanicalness of all of, of the way they do everything. I liked the way that it kind of tied to that, but something about Tangerine Dream still is not working for me. And I think the biggest problem I have with it, which unfortunately I think I have with most of Michael Mann's films when there's any sort of relationship with a woman, is I just really have a problem with the 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 way that that the women characters are treated. I don't feel like he cares about the female characters at all. And um, I, like I like the relationship between Frank and Jesse, but that's once they have the relationship. The beginning of the relationship <laughs> is one of the most jarring and awful things to see. And then to go from that to sitting down and having coffee and they're in love holding hands, I'm like, what the hell is she thinking? It's, yeah. it's really hard for me to get on board with that. I mean, I like, I like that scene, but it's the fact that that scene comes after the two previous scenes where he's like rips her out of a bar after being late for a date and she's mad at him it throws her in his car punches <laughs> the guy who tries to help her right and then drives off and yells at her it's just like god it's, and this is i i feel like this is one of uh, michael mann's biggest faults is um i i just don't feel like he knows how to uh treat the female characters in his films and i have such a hard time with that time and time again um, I, I think one time that it felt uh, like he really kind of was on, better on track with it was Collateral. Uh, I think a lot of that came from Stuart Beatty, who wrote the screenplay. Um, in this particular case, I, I mean, again, I like the relationship. I just have a hard time with the beginning of it. Yeah, I, you know, I'm with you. I think that relationship and that it, it it's it is a really jarring romance. Right. Yes. I, I have that is that's the piece. So there there are two uh, sort of. Uh, the I guess the B and C stories that I feel like were absolutely wrong in this movie that were were jarring and frustrating for me every time uh, we met them and the first one was the Willie Nelson story like I feel like that was uh, I don't know why that was even in there uh, and it was frustrating because you know they had an interesting relationship sure but I uh, I actually found myself wanting more of it. Like, if you're going to short sheet Willie Nelson when he's actually doing some pretty darn good acting in this film. (laughs) Right, right. Like, that's, you know, don't even put it in there. There's another, there are other ways. We already have the story over coffee, you know, when he's telling the the kind of uh, giving a little bit more backstory. So, I, you know, I feel like we, that, that was extremely frustrating. The second one really is the, is the relationship with, um, you know, with all the female characters. I came out of it telling my wife, I said, you know, I've decided that just in all of my working relationships, it's probably important for me to exert my masculinity by calling every woman I work with sugar. Um, <laughs> and she thought that was really funny. I bet. And, um, and, and then you may had to make your own dinner and you slept on the couch, right? <laughs> Exactly. No, it's it really is terrible, and it takes me back though. I mean, you know, to to the days of kind of going to work with dad, and you know, I don't really have a memory of my dad ever talking to people like that, but his boss sure did. Yeah, and um, and so I, you know, I, I feel like that was that was pretty accurate. I think making a movie in this period, I I can see why that why that would have come about. Um. I was still frustrated by it. the relationship between him and Jesse. That was it was terrible. Uh, I it was just made my skin crawl every time. I just couldn't I couldn't believe it. I couldn't buy it, and uh, it 
it you know it made me mad that they were together in the first place and i i have trouble resolving that because at the end when he goes hardcore and needs to and know that you know he's he's had a transformation he knows he needs to to resolve this situation and free himself he goes cold and he sends her away right gives her money sends her away mm-hmm. do we how important is it that we hated that relationship to begin with for that transformation to occur. I mean, do you think there's any rational reason we should be um, at all celebrating his decision to go cold and send her away because of the way their relationship formed? Or was it really just bad? I I don't think... Well, see, here's the thing, is I don't think that we're meant to hate the relationship. Again, this is a a problematic storytelling... uh, philosophy, I guess I maybe could say, that Michael Mann has when dealing with relationships in his film. He can deal with male relationships really well, but when it comes to the female relationships, I just don't think that they that I can ever buy into them. Now, I, I know that about Michael Mann, so maybe that's why I'm kind of giving him a little bit of a pass on this, and, and I was able to buy into the, the relationship more once I, I dismissed those first two scenes of them in their in their relationship once i kind of just close my mind to those and i start with them having that date in the in the in the bar or wherever they were um i'm much more okay with it i'm not angry with it i can buy into the relationship and what i and and i do buy into his character arc and the way that he does have to dismiss that relationship at the end because i i find it it's it's such a tragic uh decision that he has to make but as he says in prison, you know, he had to learn that what uh, what it's all about really is is closing himself off, and he can't have anything in his life, and it's it's a really kind of a a painful realization for him just because he opted to work with Leo on this uh, this uh, big heist out in L.A. that he ends up. Um, you know, as a person who kind of had nothing left in his life, he 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 was seduced by Leo, and um, he now has to go from not caring about anything to he's he started caring about something, and now he has to give all of that up, and he has to shed himself of those things now, and um, go back to being somebody who has nothing. And I don't know. I think it's an incredible tragedy, and I really like that part of the story. I think that's really powerful it's it's just frustrating that it is tied into that um that relationship and that uh is the thing that he has to dismiss and and not just the relationship i mean he gets rid of everything i mean he he tells her to leave with with the baby he uh blows up his car dealership he blows up the bar like everything that he is anything to do with he destroys because he has to completely not have anything in his life again yeah, you know, it's funny. That's what that's one of the areas that I think I had um you know, trouble with was his resolution at the end because I could feel as I was watching the film uh that the tragedy existed and emotionally I had bought into it, right? But because the architecture of the relationship that he had with Jesse was so weak uh to me, I I found myself relieved only in so far as that part of the story was over. Um, and w- then he starts blowing everything up, and then he goes and resolves this 
problem with Leo with a couple of, you know, quick assassinations. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought, why? Well, I, I couldn't help but thinking, why did he just destroy everything when he was able to deal with Leo regardless of the infrastructure of his bar and the infrastructure of his car lot mm-hmm. and his his house. Why did he feel he had to, to torch everything? Uh, because, you know, at that point, I'm bought into the emotional tragedy of it, and you're right, I'm going in with Michael Mann baggage. I know this is how his crime films end, but I don't feel like this one, I feel like this one ended, uh, resolved sloppily. Like, all the emotion was there, uh, that connection was there, but the the literal resolution was sloppy. I, I didn't find it made sense. Well, I guess the reason I I bought into it was, okay, this is a guy who um, made the mistake of caring and, and, and building kind of a world for himself. He gets tied up with the wrong people, and he has to destroy that world. I don't think it's just because of Leo. I mean, yes, he does resolve that whole situation, but he's got the cops uh, wiretapping his lines and following him. I mean, he's got, you know, probably Leo's, uh, I'm, I'm sure there's other, you know how these organized crime families are. There's other webs <laughs> and other people, you know. There, oh, it's, it yeah, doesn't, you know, it doesn't I do end. know. I know you know. <laughs> nudge, nudge, wink, wink, know what I mean, know what I mean. Uh, it's, it's one of those things where I, I feel like, he feels he's trapped, and even though he's able to kind of resolve the immediate problem uh, because of Leo has been threatening him, um, he is a he he has to basically escape and become uh, a nobody again and disappear. So and you so, feel like he's he knew he was a marked man. Yeah, I totally felt that, especially right. because I mean the cops were all over him through the film, and uh, like I just know that they would be looking at him very suspiciously because of this whole Leo thing. So I feel like he had to get out of Dodge, and he had to erase himself pretty much. Yeah, okay. I mean, I buy that. I wonder how well they, how hard they'd be looking for him after he blows up two businesses and a residential home. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. uh, interestingly, the original shooting script actually did end with him reuniting with Jesse. How do you feel about that? I don't know. I I'm not sure that it works for me actually. I mean, I there's something about Frank. I really like James Caan as Frank. But I feel like that would almost be a, a weird betrayal to the character arc that he just went on. You know, yeah. this is a man who had a hard time in prison and and decided that the only way he can survive is by having nothing. And he he gets something, he has to destroy it and go back to having nothing. And then if it ended with him going and getting that thing again, I think it would almost betray the whole point of the film. Well, here's the thing about the resolution at the end of the shooting script, though. Um, I, I don't know. The end of the shooting script, she finds him, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, he's gone. It's not like he goes out and tries to... Um, right tries to resolve things with her it's like he's gone and she decides that after i think it's like after five or six months she's gonna go and find him again and he is shocked at that but what i like about it is that it gives her more texture and dimension as a character the fact is he worked hard no matter how i feel about the fact that uh, about their relationship he did work hard to in his way woo her uh and got her to marry him and they 
you know, purchased a child on the black market and now they have an instant family. And what I and, and so now we ha- we see that she has some dimension enough that this family that they created uh, was worth it enough for her to go on this hunt for him and, and rebuild it. Yeah, I like that. I mean, that gives her it gives her a reason. Which well, she's sorely lacking in in the film. Yeah, and just reading their last their last exchange once once he sees that she came in. I mean, I'll just read it real quick. Uh, Frank, what are you doing here, Jesse? Finding you, Frank. How did you get here, Jesse? By looking for five months. Frank looks away. Frank, why? Jesse looks at him. I have never, ex- Frank. I have never expected you would find me. I did not expect you would look, Jesse. Your children are at the motel, Frank. He touches her, freeze, run end credits. There's clearly something familial and uh, more to their relationship that she does still connect with. And the fact that she does find this familial bond very important. I mean, and it, and she knows that it was important to him. He had that photo of that uh, like magazine montage. Yeah, it was like his, his dream thing. Yeah, right. Exactly. She knows that it's important to him. So. I don't know. Now maybe I'm selling myself on the ending because there is something really touching about the fact that he his he thinks that he needs nothing in order to survive, but she is able to come back to him and, and show to him, no, no, remember what you found in prison when you were that person who had nothing. It wasn't about having nothing. You had a vision of what it was that you were you needed to survive, and this was one of those things. Come back to us. And so... Maybe I maybe I do like that now. I think you do. I think that's I what think you've learned about yourself. I do. That you're I'm, a I'm big lo- old softy. I'm learning and growing on the show every night. <laughs> every time we do it. Well, and you know, insofar as as uh, <laughs> I may have navigated a way of you talking yourself into that, I I, <laughs> I feel like this actually gives more resonance to uh, his decision to blow up the businesses in the home uh, after getting rid of her. Um, and and it makes that final like he touches her, um, sort of more of a tectonic shift, you know that that he he realizes uh, because I mean this movie is about a man dedicated to uh, to one future, right? He right. he has been focusing on this for so long, and this is the old Corleone thing, you know. I keep trying to get out, but they pull me back in. That that he is uh, he, he's he is focused on building a family come hell or high water. And she, what we see here is that she has thus uh, bought into that dream. And he now has somebody to share that dream with, which is is what he wanted all along. Now, is that a Michael Mann ending to a film? Categorically, no. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, it's this is definitely a, a much darker story. And it ends with him... Uh, you know, succeeding in in getting rid of Leo and his men, but it's it ends with him walking off into the shadows and disappearing into the night and essentially right. becoming a nobody, which does feel much more Michael Mann. Feels very Michael Mann. Um, so I yeah I I mean I get it, um, but but you know me I'm popcorn Pete I would prefer the uh, resolution on this. One. Well, we have both. We have, we have the I'm film gonna... and we have the script. Dare to dream. Just. Just read that last page of the script every time you watch the video. <laughs> I am a loser. Uh, okay, let's uh, let's talk about uh, other people, shall we? Yes, let's. 
Uh, I think we read through a good number of the cast. James Caan, Tuesday yeah. Weld, Willie Nelson, James Belushi, Robert Prosky. This was his first film, and we've talked about him in the past in in one of our uh, – um, what did we talk about in, with him? It was. Um, I feel like you're absolutely right. And what was the movie we talked about? The Natural. Oh, The Natural. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, one of our baseball faves. That's, That's right. What it was. That's right. So, uh, yeah, he, is, uh, he was great in this. And he still, every time I see him – Reminds me of uh, Grandpa in uh, the Munsters. <laughs> <laughs> totally, I, he will perpetually make me think of that, uh, yeah. even though he wasn't. But that's what he'll always remind me of. So this was his first film. This was James Belushi's first film. This was Dennis Farina's first film. He was actually a Chicago cop and came to work on this um, and uh, loved it and never left. Yes. So uh, it was great seeing him as one of uh, Leo's. Thugs, and um, William Peterson. Uh, William Peterson. This was what, his first film, and he went on to do Manhunter a few years later with Michael Mann. Yeah. So uh, a great group of people, um, and of course we already mentioned some of the cast were some real criminals and and some real cops, and so it sounded like there were some interesting conversations on set between some of these people uh, because I guess you know. Uh, the right amount of time had passed, so some of the criminals were admitting to things that the cops didn't like had never resolved, and so there was some frustration on the set that that's the guy who did it, and I'll never be able to get him now. And <laughs> I can't even imagine a set like that. I really can't. I know. God. Oh uh, yes. Um. Yeah. Okay. So the uh, with the cast list. I don't want to. I don't definitely don't want to bring up Tangerine Dream, but I do want to talk about Donald Thorin. And yeah. uh, only, uh, you know, I, uh, Donald Thorne has done a lot of stuff um, as a cinematographer. Uh, this, I, I believe this was his first. Is that he, true? Uh, yeah, he had actually worked with uh, Michael Mann on um, uh, the Jericho Mile as the gaffer. Um, and the gaffer is uh, the person who deals with directly with the director of photography setting up the lights and, and kind of uh, the director of photography is deciding what lights to use and the gaffer is the one in charge of all the electrics basically putting the lights up and everything yeah. um, and so um, he was the gaffer on that and he, I guess he really clicked with Michael Mann and they just got along really really well and uh, from that uh, Michael Mann felt that he was uh, good enough to uh, to be the DP, and he came on as his DP. And I think he captured, I mean, I know you're uh, joking about it earlier as far as the white balance, but I think it's a gorgeous film. And if there's any director uh, who knows how to capture a city at night, it's definitely Michael Mann. Uh, the the night footage in this film I found just stunning to look at, especially on the Criterion Blu-ray that they put out. It's just jaw-droppingly gorgeous. Yeah, I, I'll, I absolutely agree with you, but... It, you have to admit it it is an easy uh you know he's an he's an easy one to poke fun at you know a little bit yeah he loves his color schemes he loves his color schemes that's but what I i'm love, saying i love his color schemes in this film <laughs> i you know i also do and i you know i i also love them in you know i love when he goes to miami vice i actually quite uh liked the 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 look of you know, Miami Vice, it had that same sort of vibe. And I think you're right. His colors at night. What I'm interested in, in this film in particular, in particular is I found myself fascinated 
uh, by as his first as his directorial debut and as Don Thorne's um, debut as a feature cinematographer. Just how uh, well established these Michael Mann visual tropes became, like immediately. This film fits so solidly, right? Hand oh, yeah. to glove into the the visual gestalt of Michael Mann. It was amazing to me. The way he plays with leading lines in wide frames and the way he plays with these long tracking shots, uh, the way he plays, I mean, it, it, is, it is so Michael Mann. Like everything else is a variation on a theme that he has made since then. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he really knows how to establish the tone and let the tone really fit the genre in a way that works incredibly well. And uh, yeah, working with with Donald Thorin, I mean, they you're right. They established something in this film that has gone on for so many of Michael Mann's films. And it's just something that has become, uh, I mean, cliche, I suppose, um, the way that uh, other people would do it. But when Michael Mann does it, it, it's just his style and it fits perfectly. Yeah, it really does, and and is beautiful. As much as I make fun of it, it is. Uh, uh, I I think it's a it is a unique visual style, and it's a uniquely sort of American crime style. And I I um, uh, I find it really um, fascinating. Just turn what? off turn off the volume, put on your own Tangerine Dream album, <laughs> and watch this film, and you'll you'll see it. There you go. The um, they did a lot of interesting stuff with the camera work too, and made made decisions about how they would shoot the film that I think really helped tell the story of this kind of this thief in this crime world. Um, they opted to shoot, uh, you know, as much as they could, uh, whatever scenes required at night. And when they were shooting at night, they would often shoot the cars where you could really, the emphasis was on the hood of the car and the reflections of the hood. And Michael Mann was doing that in uh, purposefully uh, to design it almost like the city was a tunnel. It was just like, you know, tunnels. And, and when he'd shoot buildings, he would try to shoot them where you couldn't see the, the tops of the buildings. Like there was, a, there was a roof sitting on top of this whole thing. And like it was a great big rat maze. And, you know, these these criminals were just rats running around in the maze. And I, I even like there's the alley right at the beginning of the film. And I guess its nickname in Chicago is Rat Alley or something like that because it's so it was so infested with rats at the time or something. So it very much establishes this feel of these rats in a maze. And by making these night shots so claustrophobic and just focusing on the reflections overhead, like we're we're wrapped in this neon tunnel. Um, it really does feel that way. And I, I, I was just really drawn to the look of this film. And it, it, I, it's, then it's so striking when it steps out and all of a sudden you have a scene on the beach at Malibu as they're splashing in the waves and frolicking and having a good time and, and really kind of stepping away from that world that they've been trapped in for so long, that we've been trapped in for so long. Yeah, truly. I, you know, I like that a lot. And it was an, a wonderful setup, too, um, for the kind of third act uh, catastrophe, um, you know, as this is sort of the last time we see Barry, uh, you know, Belushi before the, the, the death of James Belushi. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it is it's really the only time we get a, any sort of breath 
in the film. Yeah. Everything else is so dark and so high contrast and so uh, uh, just sort of dour that once we're we're on the beach and we see Barry running around with uh, with his lady and and they're having a good time, only to be kidnapped and shot in the in the, uh, mm-hmm. the shotgun, uh, is it, it was quite a Michael Mann contrast. Yeah. Yeah, and it works. It's very effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very effective. Um, let's see. Uh, who else do you want to talk about? Uh, Mel Bourne is the production designer on yep. the film. He's uh, uh, just one of those production designers who's been around for a very long time. Uh, he's fantastic, and uh, I think gives the the film a great that helps with that whole claustrophobic sense. And and like you were saying earlier, uh, you know, a huge part of the production design was being very uh, realistic to the point of using real safes, using real uh, safe-cracking tools, including that giant stick, that fire stick or whatever it's called. Yeah, like the oxy uh, stick. The oxy stick, yeah. whatever, yeah, that, that they light. Uh, that was all real, and they were actually cracking into a real safe on the set at uh, Zoetrope where they were filming this or that particular scene. Um, it's uh, <laughs> There's something about that reality that lends itself to uh, even more to just the tone of this film and, and gives it a little bit more of that Michael Mann feel. And I think Mel Bourne and his uh, production design on the film just uh, really lends to that. Absolutely. Um, it It's, uh, yeah. yeah, it's a lot of texture. Yeah. Yeah, and great locations. That's something else that uh, I think is key. And Michael Mann, he is a director who he loves his locations. He is, I think, is a director who always works, uh, strives to shoot on location as much as possible and to avoid um, doing any sets uh, whenever he can. And you look at something like Heat and the amazing sets are, are collateral and I mean, just amazing sets uh, or I mean, sorry, amazing locations that they're really using all around to build their worlds and i mean the car dealership you've got that great stop that he makes to uh confront um you know the guy you know his di- his original diamond dealer uh, once he dies he goes and confronts that sleazeball at the plastic company or whatever you know mm-hmm. just the mm-hmm. that whole building just looks it, it, it there's a look to that that you could see in a photo album of you know uh, buildings from the late seventies and early eighties. And that would be in there because it just has that look. It fits so well. And, uh, so they know how to capture the right locations for everything. You know, I think that's true. And I, it's, it's a funny thing to, to really concentrate on when you're watching this, this film, right? Because, um, it's sort of the difference between CG effects and practical effects. Um, this film, you know, it takes place in Chicago and, you know, shot in Chicago and Los Angeles. Uh, and um, you can't, like, none of the locations necessarily required being on location in Chicago, right? I mean, right. nothing in there couldn't have been reproduced on a on a set, you know, with, you know, create some streets, put some water on them, and it's mostly done at night, and what are you going to lose? But you really do feel it. Uh, you know, these the wide shot, I think, in, in particular, the wide shot at LNA plating, you know, when he pulls up his car, and it's it's just a little bit off-center, you know. You kind of want the car to be further into the frame, but but you see this wall of glass bricks as he gets out of the car and, and goes into this, to this place. The shot is long, and it's dead still, and you can feel just how... 
just how real these locations are. Um, you know, I think it really is, is, is good, but that gets back. It, it get, the thing that it triggers for me is Tangerine Dream again. Yeah. Because, um, so many of the locations were so real, right? Like you yep. really feel like you're there in Chicago. Uh, it starts to make you think about uh, the sound that they're giving you. You know, they're taking such pains to put you in this place. Why are they giving you kind of new wave electronica um, as the uh, as the backing track or new age electronica as the backing track to these things? Why why don't we put? Why aren't they putting us in? Uh, you know that sort of iconic Chicago blues sound or, you, yeah. know, you know what I'm saying? Like, so there was a conscious decision to separate the physical and the audio overlay of location. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, Michael Mann said he thought that by using Tangerine Dream, um, there would be a benefit um, of that abstraction of the way that the, there's that electronic score um, that would emphasize the separation of these thieves from the real world and it would help their themes emerge better and everything. And I, you know, it, but again, like he, like I said earlier, it, this is something that he still battles with and he still is unsure if he made the right decision. And I am unsure if he made the right decision because I do, <laughs> I, I do feel like sometimes he's right. There are times where I feel like I can buy into this music working in this particular scene. Like I think it works Better for me, um, maybe in the uh, break-ins, like the crime scenes. There's something, there is something really kind of uh, that synthetic metallic uh, noise that does fit that world better for me. When it's when it's him and Jesse holding hands and stuff like that, that's when it starts feeling like this is just that awkward '80s synthetic, you know, music that I'm just like not digging at all. I had so many Tangerine Dream albums. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not kidding. They, this this film is the film that uh, kind of uh, brought them to the Hollywood forefront, and they ended up doing quite a lot of films after 50, this. 50 yeah, films yeah. to their career. Yeah. I mean, they had done other films beforehand, and notably um, Sorcerer, which came out uh, four years before this, but... I think that this was the big one that all of a sudden shot them into the Hollywood spotlight. I mean, they were doing uh, Risky Business, The Keep. They did a few more films with uh, Michael Mann, uh, Firestarter, Vision Quest, Red Heat, uh, Near Dark. They just they they did this for a long time. Um, Legend. I mean, they did lots and lots of stuff. So crazy. Yeah. Uh, wow. I'm I uh, I'm not really paying attention to you anymore because I'm now browsing Tangerine Dream on my, in my collection. <laughs> um, you know they they're still making music. They Knights of uh, Asheville live at Moog Fest, Asheville, North Carolina, released in crazy. 2013. Wow! Right? I wonder how many of the original guys are still. I don't know with them. Wonder if or matters. is it one guy named Tangerine? Named Tangerine Dream. That's funny. <laughs> I have no idea. No, because one of the one of the band members was uh, interviewed in. Uh, I think they're German, right? Yeah, I, I, you know, honestly, I have no idea. I started getting into Tangerine Dream because uh, a buddy of mine in his older brother was into Tangerine, and his older brother was super cool. <laughs> and so I I had to get into Tangerine Dream, and so I got. But I've never done any research in you know 
what is it, 25 years. Never done any research on what the band is all about, who's in it, don't know anybody in it. I just have all these albums. Rubicon, Stratosphere, Ugh, name it. You know, uh, it's kind of the same way with Vangelis. Yeah, uh, except I can I can find more of an emotional resonance with Vangelis's stuff. Yeah. Hmm. Well, Some of it. Aren't you special? I am. Oh, okay. All right. I think we need to uh, move move on here. What do you think? I think we should feel good. Shall we? Uh, I... Shall we rank it? Well, let's talk money. Oh gosh, yeah, we should talk money. I got so excited about. Uh, I know. Vangelis. I, now. I know you did. All right. Uh, how to do? How well, this movie, it cost about $7 million smackers to make, uh, so just a few, mm-hmm. and uh, it adjusted, that's, <laughs> just that's about... Just a few smackers. Just a few smackers. It's about $18 million in today's dollars, um, and it went and made for itself, uh, let's see, about $11.5 million um, domestically. I didn't find any numbers internationally, but about $11.5 million which is um, about 29.5 million adjusted for today's dollars. So it did it did all right for itself. It made uh, adjusted $94,277.56 per finished minute. All right. So it did well for itself but not enough to make a sequel. Not enough to make a sequel. <laughs> the right. sequel. Oh my god, we didn't white balance this again. <laughs> but you know it's funny though cuz James Conn says this is uh, one of his like three favorite films that he's done, and that scene that he has the long yeah. uh, conversation he has with with Tuesday with uh, Jesse in the in the diner, um, that's like his favorite scene that he's ever done. I I read that and was a little bit shocked. I well I I like that scene. I actually went back and re- rewatched it after I read that um, because I was too. And I was like, okay, I can see it. I can see it because there is some interesting stuff going on in that scene. Is it my, would I say it's James Conn's best scene? I don't know, but it's his favorite scene. So, yeah, yeah. Well, it's no Brian Piccolo. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Do you know where you're going to? Oh, good time. Good time. All right. Hey, let's uh, let's rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you can catch up with all of our that's our that's our big list. All of the, the stack rankings of our favorite films and not so favorite films that we have talked about on the show. We are up to what are we up to? 137? This is going to be 135. 130, like I said, 135. Uh, and you can see, are we? Is it going to break the vaunted top one hundred? Well, let's find out. Thief or the Born Ultimatum? Born Ultimatum. Yeah, I think I would say Born Ultimatum. I mean, I I like Thief a lot, but I think I would do Born Ultimatum. Um, Thief or your favorite, Yee Yee, a one and a two. I'm gonna say Thief. I think Thief. I is. would even watch Thief. Uh, 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 I would watch Thief dubbed in Chinese if that would <laughs> satisfy that comparison. I would watch it, and I don't speak a, a lick of Chinese. And you'd watch it twice. I'd watch it twice to... in Chinese before I would sit down and watch Yee Yee again. Oh, that's funny. All right, Thief or Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. Oh, Last Crusade. Yeah, 
I it has its problems, but it is Indiana Jones. Renamed the dog Indiana. Thief or Cloverfield? I would go Thief. Okay. Yeah, I would definitely go Thief. Yeah. I probably shouldn't have even spent that long uh, thinking about it. Well, you know, once you think of the kids... It's yeah, like, it's oh, the, oh, Aber- yeah. the Abercrombie ad. Oh, that's why <laughs> I'm going Thief. Thief or A League of Their Own. <laughs> thief. Ah, oh, man, A League of Their Own, though. Ironically. I, maybe not so ironically. There's also no crying in uh, Diamond Heists. <laughs> Otherwise, you get shot! <laughs> that's right. I actually would go Thief, because I, I do feel it's the better movie, even though I have a very special place in my heart for A League of Their Own. So take that, Thief. <laughs> <laughs> Try to steal that from me. You'll never take my heart. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thief or Driving Miss Daisy. Oh. Lots of crime in that one. Wow. <laughs> you know, James Earl Jones is in that right now, I think. Uh, he, on Broadway, right? Yeah. With uh, 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 Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> I was going to say, Agatha Christie. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh. No, it's not Agatha Christie. What's it's her name? Not- Oh, this is gonna All kill me! Is oh. oh, who's gonna get it? So, what's her name? This is Potts. <laughs> uh, Angela Lansbury. There you go. Thank you. Oh, might as a... well have been Agatha Christie. <laughs> <laughs> Angela Agatha. Yeah. All right. What's next? Uh, oh, we haven't even Daisy. talked about it. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm gonna have to go I... driving mid Daisy on that. Driving mid Daisy on this one. Mid Daisy. Mid Daisy. I would go thief on this one. Really? How much? Because I'm I, not that sold on driving mistakes. You know, just thinking about uh, okay, sure, it's got some of the, some of that awkward Michael Mann relationship stuff, but the crime scenes, uh, Robert Prosky, I just his scenes thrilled me every time he was on. I love the uh, the shootout at the end. I love all the break-ins. I, I had a, a great time with this film. And Driving Miss Daisy is a film I feel has a very specific pace to it, and it's a very specific character film. And if I'm going to watch a character film, I think I'm going to watch a character film that involves uh, break-ins. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the the problem I had with, uh, with Robert Prosky, and I, I also think it was great, but I couldn't stop thinking of Ned Beatty uh, in Robert Prosky's stuff. Uh, in network, in particular, when he does his big monologue, right? Uh-huh. Uh, and so when he when Prosky does the wake up, I own you, I own your kids, I'm gonna do horrible <laughs> things, and your wife is gonna work in my restaurant, and no, it's terrible. Uh, the <laughs> things that he says, uh, I I wanted him to be Ned Beatty. Mm, and, uh, interesting. And uh, that has no nothing to do with driving Miss Daisy, but uh, I I'm fine with that. Go, you do what you want. <laughs> okay. All right. Thief or quarantine? Um, I. Wow, I might even go thief on this one. I think I am too. I quarantine is a really fun film, but I feel like I just there's a little more meat to thief. Yeah. Look at that. We did it. Eighty six. Eighty six. Eighty six out of one hundred thirty five. I'm gonna say I that actually surprises me. I, I thought, given some of the choices that we made there, that it would be higher. 
Well, the problem is when you start, uh, when you hit that middle point, yeah, uh, it, it drops. This is a flick chart thing. Like you start, you know, you say no, it, you know, you, we give it to Born Ultimatum, it throws it to the very bottom of the list and then it competes its way up toward the yeah. middle. So, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a tricky thing with flick chart. So, right. well, hey, good fun 86. I'll yes. Take it. Um, all right, so where do we go from here in our 1981 uh, Wonder Quest? Well, we're going to have a fun week next week, because I think this is one of my favorites from 81, and we're going to uh, head across the pond and uh, enjoy an American werewolf in London. <laughs> yes, we are. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. John Landis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. I'm definitely looking forward to it. Yeah. I love that movie. Good fun. Yep. Uh, John Landis next week, and um, I, I think, do we have any news for the people? No. Nope. News for the people. Make nope. sure to hit the Instagram thing, people. Yes. Give uh, give uh, old Stephen Smart the run for his money. He needs it. Because <laughs> he's not getting paid. <laughs> That's right. So, so. Uh, he needs the exercise, let's say that. <laughs> That doesn't make any sense. Uh, you're, you're selling clearly, it, but not really. Clearly, I got to go to bed. I'm going to go rob a bank. History in Tulsa. That's I, I feel a song coming on. <laughs> I don't horn know. is as high as an elephant's eye. And where is it growing, Andy? And it looks, looks like, like it's, it's climbing straight up to the sky. Oh, what a beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we could never sing together over this because of the delay. Is I, just... That wasn't bad. Was it delayed on your end? I oh, thought we sounded quite delayed. good. Oh, no, it was perfect oh, okay. on here. Yeah, it was horribly delayed on my end. Right in tune. We are doing You're... the wrong podcast, is what I'm saying. <laughs> we, should be, we should be doing the singing one. Singing movie <laughs> reviews. Singing movie Nobody's reviews. Nobody's doing that yet. <laughs> hey, can I tell you about my Amazon review? Oh, please do. I'm going to do uh, M. Benet, oh. I, as I mentioned, from Tulsa. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, she says, uh, it's a two-star review. I did not like this film as much as we did. Says it's mm -hmm. an unlikable lead. Maybe I'm being naive here, but shouldn't the lead in a film generate some likability to the audience? Otherwise, why would you spend two hours with him? Every time I thought there was going to be a little spark of warmth or humanity in the lead character, he goes back to being the one-dimensional tough guy. When toward the end... When the lead is sending his wife away with their adopted baby son that they have, he gives her $410,000 to take with her. Then I started thinking, well, here's his human caring side. <laughs> nope, not to be. He then goes ahead and instructs his wife, who he's kicking out, that she has to pay the guy. He's sending her with the driver of the journey. On his journey, $20,000 first month, $25,000. Well, she gives away the whole movie. Four hundred. How long is four hundred ten thousand dollars going to last if she has to keep paying this guy incrementally larger amounts? That's when I said, 
forget this guy. He's damaged goods. Ooh. I know she's very serious. She should have called it damaged goods. She should have called it damaged goods. Unlikable yeah. lead. Right. She really she buried the the uh, yeah. lead there, so she to did. speak. Yeah. Did not like it as much as we did, well, I don't think. Well, mine is a one star review. Mm, titled, straight titled to the bottom. Stylish stupidness. And that's S T O O P I D N I N E S S. When so. you really want to make a point, make sure you that's misspell right. it. Thank you, Sakara, who wrote this review. Uh, Sakara says, James Conn is an adult, not a kid, in the 1980s, not 1930s, who thinks he can do just one job for the mafia and then quit with no trouble from the mafia. I had to say it the way because there's four exclamation points. <laughs> Even back in the 1930s, with little Caesar misspelled, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. just couldn't quit the mob. There are there are some nice gore, violent scenes, especially for the stupid and stylish climax in which James Conn practically goes out of his way to screw himself over before the mafia can screw him over. That's how dumb this movie is. Conn at the climax ruins his life in order to get revenge on the mafia. Go figure. Three stars if you don't care for common sense and love movies with shiny wet streets and fancy lights at night. <laughs> I like how Sakara gave an additional rating, just in case you're one of those people who loves movies with shiny wet streets. That is awesome. And I think we can say we do love shiny wet streets. 